0: Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. We are thrilled to bring our hit virtual museum lecture series to the podcast. Now, with over 30 lectures on YouTube, we're so happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more of you can enjoy these fascinating stories and join in on the historical adventures. Coming up this spring, we'll release the audio for lectures on topics such as the history of the largest cemetery here in Niagara, Ontario's racially segregated schools, the Third Welling Canal, and much more. More lectures are headed your way this spring over on YouTube. You can join in live or catch the lectures on our playlist afterwards. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find us at St. Catharines Museum so you don't miss any of the fun. For more information on the lecture series, the impressive guest list, and the lecture topics, please visit stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, our podcasts, and our programs, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca or give us a call at 905-984-8880 to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Today's lecture features Supervisor of Historical Services and curator, Kathleen Powell, with a discussion of Marking Time, an exhibit that was on display here at the museum, which featured textiles and fashion from the museum's collection, which helped to mark life's significant milestones. It's a bit more visual than some of our other lectures, so visit our YouTube playlist to watch the lecture in full. Enjoy the lecture!
1: Coding a memory in the brain is a biological event that is based on a sensory experience. Uh, The smell, the taste, touch, sound, sights of a particular time and place provide the building blocks of memory creation. Uh, When a memory is built, essentially, we're telling our brain's electrician to lay some new wiring up there. uh, And when you want to recall that memory, it's like flipping the light switch uh, and turning that light on and pulling up that remembrance. Like any renovation, uh, creating a memory is like doing a renovation to your brain, and new memories change who we are. They change our habits, our ideologies, our hopes and fears are all influenced by what we remember of our past. While they may seem small at the time, every new memory renovates our personality in some way. Our experiences are like layers one on top of the other over the course of our lives. We collect experiences in long and short term memory. People often recall a particular event or experience through what they're wearing. Uh, If you think about, lots of times, if you think about something that, uh, an event that happened to you that's very uh, memorable and you can bring it back really clearly in your mind, lots of times you can remember what you were wearing at the time. And the exhibit I'm going to talk to you about tonight takes a look at how we mark times in our lives through the worn objects in our museum's collection. How I have connected these objects to a particular place in time. And also through photographs of particularly significant events in a person's life. So you might ask, why would I choose clothing uh, to tell this kind of uh, a story about our community's history? Uh, The materiality of clothing is a, a significant way to evoke a specific time and place. According to fashion historian Bethan Bide, and I quote, our knowledge and understanding of the past is rooted in the body and clothes and textiles play a special role in recalling the past due to the way that they take an imprint of the body that wears them and they are left marked by the sweat and stains of everyday life." End quote. Clothing acts as an emotional trigger that carries stories and records memory conjures tactile memory, and stimulates sensory and emotional memory. This new exhibit looks at the varied types of events that mark a significant memory in a person's life through the medium of clothing associated with that event. So let's get started. Uh, And I'm just gonna um, kind of say one last thing about memories. And just as memories layer one upon the other to create a person's identity, the collective memory of the residents of a community layer one upon the other to create a distinct community identity. Uh, one that's always in a state of flux as new memories are added. So really, you know, we've pulled together a few stories through this exhibit uh, and through all of our exhibits at the museum, and taking them all together as a collective is what makes us part of a community. So while the exhibit is very personal about specific uh, individuals, it's also very personal about how our community changes through how people remember things over time. So to get started, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the first day of school first. Uh, As we go through this talk, you'll see that like our memories, uh, don't get stored or accessed in a chronological order. So this exhibit itself doesn't actually follow a linear order. And my talk doesn't follow a linear order from birth to death. It really follows in the kind of way that you would access your own memories in your brain. Uh, you'd access them at different times and places in your life. And at, when you're thinking about different things and it's all not always, you know, one day to the next, um, and so that really gives us a really interesting way to, uh, to give every person who's looking at the exhibit their own experience of this exhibit. You can look at everything in this exhibit in any way you want. There is no set way, uh, no set arrows to have to follow around the exhibit. You can uh, mix and match what you want to, uh, to take in at any given time. So the first day of school, Uh, Well, the memory of our first day of school might be a bit murky because a lot of us can't remember back to when we were four years old. Some people can, um, but uh, there's really no denying that the general feeling of excitement, uh, usually mixed with fear, uh, is what we take in when we're thinking about our first day of school. According to the St. Catherine Standard of September 6, 1938, 6,000 local students return to their studies in schools all around the city. Seen here in this photo is Miss Georgia McCall, who was the principal at St. Andrew's School. And you can see she's ringing her bell to call the students to class. You could just imagine uh, every year before the first day of school, uh, Miss McCall, you know, flip, flipping through her wardrobe the night before classes, carefully choosing her outfit for the next day, one that would be appropriate for her place in the school as the principal and a teacher, but also utilitarian for the task of wrangling a group of excited school children on their first day of school. This dress and jacket from the museum's Warren Hartman collection. Uh, You can see it's this beautiful sage green in color. And it really reminded me of Miss McCall's outfit and it's from the same era. uh, And this is why it was chosen for this exhibit. The dress has a five-gore skirt with a zipper on the left-hand side of the waist. Uh, You can see here, it has a scooped neck with a ruched insert. Uh, and cap sleeves well you can't see the cap sleeves but they're there under the jacket um, and uh, it has a, a natural waistline a stiffened belt with a buckle uh, it has a matching unlined jacket with shoulder pads a little peplum which gives it the little kind of zazz to the back uh, and two lovely shaped pockets with ruching as well and they're a cut on the bias and there the front of it has four buttons with a two-piece collar and a three quarter length sleeve with a bias cut. So I can imagine Miss McCall choosing an outfit like this for her first day of school potentially. It's actually not too far off what you can see her wearing here. She's got a jacket and a a skirt and a blouse, Uh, but it's very similar, very utilitarian. uh, And she could have had something very similar in her wardrobe at the time she was teaching at St. Andrews Ward School, which is here. Uh, St. Andrews Ward School was, uh, in case you're curious, was located on the corner of Church Street and Williams Street downtown and was operated from 1853 to 1954. Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, the first day of school in our uh, first memory, this one here is from September 6, 1938. One of the most significant memories a lot of people have relate to some sort of religious observance. And religious observances mark significant moments in many people's lives in all different religions. Uh, These ceremonies provide some of the most remembered incidents of our lives. They usually include things like special clothing, food, normally lots of food, and gathering of family and friends in laughter and sometimes tears. Emotional reactions have a really important part in helping to cement memories in our brains, which is why a lot of times Um, religious observances are really well cemented in our brain because many times they are also very emotionally charged because you're having uh, hanging out with people that you're you're uh, emotionally connected to. Seen in this photo is the baptism of Charles Burchill. He's the the small baby in the uh, kind of top left hand corner and he's the son of Leonard and Betty Burchill. Uh, Leonard Burchill is who is holding on to him and Betty, his mother, is uh, is standing next to him uh, and their family. Charles Burchill was born in 1953, and this photo appears to have been taken sometime in that same year. Charles' baptism took place at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Port Dalhousie. Uh, And the baptismal font that's in this picture uh, will also be on display in our exhibit uh, and it was donated to the museum when the church uh, now which was most recently St Andrew's United Church was closed in 2014. Uh, just a little history about Lenor, Leonard Burchill, if you didn't already know. He was raised in St. Catharines, uh, became an air commodore. He ap- attended primary school at Connaught School, secondary at St. Catharines Collegiate, and post-secondary at the Royal Military of College of Canada. He was commissioned into the Royal Canadian Air Force in 1937, and on April 14, 1942, While flying a patrol southeast of Ceylon, he and his crew found and gave warning of a Japanese fleet foiling a surprise attack on the Allies. For his actions, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, uh, but sadly he was also shot down during that same action uh, and he spent the remainder of the war as a prisoner of war in Japan. Following the war, he was a member of the prosecution team at the War Crimes Trials in Japan and in August 1950, for his service, he was made an Officer of the American Legion of Merit. Uh, Leonard Burchill continued to serve after the war as Chief Air Operations in the Royal Canadian Air Force and Commandant of the Royal Military College uh, and continued to serve until 1968 when he was released from the Canadian Forces. Uh, he went on to join New York University as the Executive Officer of the Faculty of Administration uh, and he served in that position until he retired in 1982. He was also an honorary colonel in the 400th Air Reserve Squadron uh, and received honorary degrees Doctor of Military Science at the Military College in 1980 and an honorary degree Doctor of Law from York University in 1982. So he was awarded all kinds of things, and in 1989 he was also awarded the award, the Order of Ontario, and because of the number of years of service, he was able to get five bars on his Canadian Forces decoration, which is quite a feat if you uh, choose to uh, to Google that and take a look at it. In 2000 he was inducted as a member of the Order of Canada, and in 2001 he was inducted into the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame. But on top of all of that, he was also a father, as you can see in this photo here, to Sharon, who is the the young girl standing in the front, Judith, oh sorry, Sharon, who is the young girl standing to the uh, the right of the photo, and uh, Judith, who is the young girl that's standing in the front uh, with the hat, with the braids coming down from it, and to young boy Charles, who is having his christening on this day. Christenings, of course, always have the most of the time have the person who is having their baptism dressed in some sort of white, lots of times flowy outfit kind of like a dress Well, it is a dress essentially, and this was no different. we don't have Charles Burchell's christening gown, which would have been nice to have in our collection, but we do have one that looks very similar to the one that's in the picture. Uh, this one here is the christening gown that belonged to the darker family, who was a family in St. Catharines. It's a beautiful christening gown. Uh, as you can see, it has pleating um, that goes in both directions, horizontal and um, vertical, down the entire length of the front of the christening gown with lace trim on both sides of the pleating. It has a beautiful high round collar right at the top for going around the baby's neck uh, and long sleeves trimmed with lace and mother of pearl buttons down the back uh, with a ruffled hem uh, also with trimmed with lace. This is a beautiful example of a christening gown very similar to what would have been worn by Charles Burchell and possibly what would have been worn by potentially anyone else out there who was having having their baptism. Um, I know personally, our family has a family. Uh, baptism gown that has been through many of the children in our family over the years and it certainly has helped to cement that experience in the um, the family's uh, history as we go through and no doubt it was the same for the darker family who owned this christening gown as well as for the Birchall family who were in the original picture. Of course, we have to talk about birthdays if we're going to talk about marking time, this is essentially what marking time is all about. Uh, Marking your date of birth is the epitome of marking time, uh, as it basically just marks one more calendar year has passed in your life. Uh, In our memories, birthdays stand out for their joyful times, Uh, usually new clothes, lots of times cake and candles, family and friends, and most of the time includes presents for most people. Uh, this lovely photo uh, was captured on May 24th, 1956, of a smiling Beverly Schwanker on her sixth birthday. And she's standing next to her house, which was located at 14th Elsie Street. Uh, and she is holding Betsy Wetsy, her doll. Uh, and she's standing in front of her new baby buggy, which she just got for her birthday. At the same time, she was also given as a gift a baby bed and a high chair uh, for her prized Betsy Wetsy doll. And uh, the bed and the high chair were both made by her father, Carl, who owned Schwenker Builders. Now, this birthday must have been a very memorable birthday for Beverly Schwenker because she kept this baby buggy and... uh, and the bed and the high chair into adulthood and just recently, well, relatively recently donated it to the museum in 2012. As you probably know from your own experience that many childhood objects uh, remain as touchstones uh, to kind of ground us in memories of our childhood. Um, both by those people who used them and by those people who were connected to their owners so parents and things like that. The museum's collection is full of uh, objects that parents saved from their children's lives because they have such an emotional connection to them. Lots of baby buggies lots of times Little riding horses, children's toys, dollhouses—those are things that are really uh, have an emotional connection to childhood that uh, um, that people find important. And you know, you can tell that a lot of things in our collection are things that are important to people's lives and rem- remind them of things because they're here. Otherwise, if it wasn't important, they wouldn't have put the effort into saving it for as long as they did, and then eventually donating it to a museum. next let's talk about Emancipation Day. Love this picture. Uh, For the African Canadian community, Emancipation Day marked a significant event in the calendar. uh, Celebrated each year on August 1st, Emancipation Day marks the passing of the Slavery Slavery Abolition Act, uh, which brought an end to chattel slavery throughout the British Empire and it came into effect on August 1st 1834 in Britain, Canada, and several other colonies. Emancipation Day celebrations began in St. Catharines as early as 1835, but they really had their heyday in the early 20th century with the first big picnic held at Lakeside Park in 1923. Food, swimming, games, and dancing were the order of the day and attendees dressed up or or brought or bought new clothes for the occasion so they might dress up in clothes they already had or they might buy new clothes for the occasion and the yearly emancipation day picnic would int- attract hundreds of revelers from across southern ontario and the united states who planned for weeks prior to their arrival seen in this amazingly cool photo is Dorothy Black of Buffalo and Dave Clark of Toronto as they and this is quoted from the St. Catharines as they swing into action and they rock the roof jitterbugging this photo appeared in the St. Catharines Standard on August 11th 1950 Uh, but uh, it appeared just after the uh, Emancipation Day picnic While dancing may have highlighted the afternoon's activities, food and fellowship were the order of the day. I'm going to quote here Wilda Rhodes, who was the daughter of Norman Rhodes and a longtime participant in the Emancipation Day celebrations in Lakeside Park. Uh, We have some of her reminiscences here in one of the the Emancipation Day files at the museum. Uh, When she was describing the preparations that were made for the big day, and I quote, they baked cakes, cut meat, and brought preserves, pickles, and bread. They had big, thick apple pies. You could hold them in your hand and eat them. There was spare ribs, and they would make their own sauce. You put all the food into big clothes baskets or boxes. I can just imagine how awesome the Emancipation Day picnic must have been with all of your friends from all over the province and, and uh, northern New York State coming together, enjoying the weather, right in a great park with all kinds of rides, the beach, food, must have been an awesome time. This uh, image that you can see here on the screen is sadly not Dorothy Black's outfit. You can see it's fairly close, whoops, sorry, fairly close, but it's not it exactly. Sadly, we weren't able to replicate her. We didn't have her outfit in the collection but we did the best we can uh, to try to evoke the same feel. And to me, this outfit uh, with this beautiful, small cotton blouse with a turned up sleeve with a beautiful little button on the button detail um, and these nice little shorts really evoke the same feel and memory for warm summer evenings, enjoying music with friends and rocking the roof uh, in the dance hall. So there's really no question that going to war is a life-changing experience. Uh, In most instances, war service represents a watershed moment in a person's life where memories of your life before And memories of your life after the war hold a distinct place in a chronology. This gent here that's on the left hand side in the uniform is Walter Harry Bombay, who was born in St. Catharines on August 3rd, 1924. During the Second World War, Walter was a part of the Royal Canadian Naval Volunteer Reserve, and he served as a gunner on board the HMCS Guelph, which was a flower class corvette. The HMCS Guelph was one of a number of Royal Canadian Navy vessels who participated in the Battle of the Atlantic uh, in an effort to control key shipping routes between Europe and North America and who served as escort to merchant convoys across the Atlantic. Following the war, Walter married and bought a house at Nine Ingram Place, He got a job at McKinnon's and he worked there for 37 years, retiring in 1982. He raised a family and he was a member of the Royal Canadian Legion. Walter died at the Shaver Hospital on September 24th, 1999 in his 76th year. This slide, you can see his uniform from his time in the Navy. Uh, sadly, it's not the exact same uniform that is here in this picture. He would have had uh, both the dark colored uniform and a white uniform, as you can see here. Um, and it's interesting, this uniform, that uh, it's very small, very slight. Uh, and you get a kind of a feel when you're standing next to this mannequin of uh, Alex's, uh, um, sorry, Walter's uh, height and size. Um, But if you go back and you look at the original picture and you look at the rakish way that he's wearing his hat and how he's got his arm just draped right over his buddy, you can really get a feel for his personality. Um, This uniform is in excellent condition. He obviously cherished the uniform later in life. Um, It's very well kept, and uh, you can see that uh, he did take pride in his service in the military, uh, just based on the uniform that's here. We're going to stick a little bit with the uh, shipping Navy kind of theme and talk about a dream job. Uh, Usually from childhood, we're asked to consider what we want to be when we grow up. As we move into adulthood, starting a job usually stands out as a crucial moment in your life. Uh, It could be seen most of the time as a move from youth to independence. And so it really sticks in your memory what that, you know, that first real adult job that you got. Here in this picture is Alexander or Alex Wren. Uh, And Alex Wren moved to St. Catharines after the Second World War, where he had served in the heavy artillery. He was very mechanically inclined and decided to take up a career in engineering on merchant ships plying, plying the Great Lakes. In 1947, he joined the Meisner fleet, uh, where he worked his way through the ranks, eventually serving as chief engineer on the J.N. McWaters, which you can see in this picture, a ship which carried iron ore. While working at his dream job, he also met a cook on one of the ships that he was working on, her name was Veronica Summers, uh, and they met on board the ship and eventually, while they got to know each other uh, in that time, they eventually married in 1950. If we go back, I'm just going to give you a little quick look at this picture once again. You can see in this photo he's wearing uh, some white overalls and a hat, uh, and here they are. Here's. Alex Wren's work clothes from the Meisner fleet. It's difficult to tell in the photo that this is exactly what he's wearing, but we do have the photo and the uh, the overalls that came from his family. Um, interesting about this picture, I know it's not a very good picture. Uh, it's the only picture we have of him actually working in his workplace. But what I find interesting about this picture is you could tell that it was taken while the ship was moving. Uh, if you look at the little squiggly, kind of white squiggles in the middle of the screen, those are the little lights on the dash of that uh, wall where all the little knobs are and you can see they're moving a little bit and that's the movement of the ship caught on film, essentially. And so we have uh, Alex Wren's uniform which will be on display in this exhibit. He continued his career uh, with Meisner, retiring in 1985 after 35 years of work uh, in their uh, shipping, um, shipping company. Uh, He died in 1993 and is buried at Victoria Lawn Cemetery with his wife, Veronica. Sometimes we don't just mark personal milestones, but events that are milestones in our country's history. Kind of similar to what we talked about with Emancipation Day. Marking significant events in the country's history is a way to take time to reflect on where we have been as a group and where we are going. Uh, These special days often include parades, special programs and activities, commemorative programming on TV and radio, and a coming together of community in fellowship and support. This uh, time that we're marking in this particular slide is Louis Riel Day. Louis Riel was a French Catholic Métis who was born in St. Boniface Red River Settlement in 1844. Uh, if you're not sure where that is located, it's located in what is today modern-day Manitoba. As he grew up, he became aware of the plight of the Métis and the fear of their loss of their way of life and their ancestral lands. Riel fought for the rights of his people to negotiate their own terms of entry into Confederation. In 1884, the Canadian government sent a military expedition against Riel and the Métis during the Northwest resistance. The story is much more complicated than this, but to keep it short for this presentation, that's the kind of shortened version. Riel eventually surrendered and was tried for treason by a Protestant non-Aboriginal jury who found him guilty. He was sentenced to death. And was hung on November 16, 1885. With Truth and Reconciliation and taking a look at really critically at the history of the founding of our country, uh, in 1992 Riel was formally given the status of a founding father of confederation, and the government of Canada issued a statement of reconciliation to begin to Uh, redress the events surrounding the death of Louis Riel and the government's response to the Métis treatment in the Northwest. Every year on November 16th, the anniversary of Louis Riel's death, Canadians come together across the homeland to mark Louis Riel day and to remember the man, his cause and his legacy. So this is uh, a close-up of the sash that is being worn uh, or that is kind of draped across the front of the podium in this picture here. And in this image is Derek Pont of the Niagara Regional Métis Council. He's the president and he's speaking at the Louis Riel Day flag raising in 2017. And they've... um, been really great partners in this exhibit. And I want to thank the Niagara Regional Métis Council for that, uh, for giving us a sash to be able to put on display. Interestingly, when I was talking to uh, to Derek about uh, marking time and the idea of how do we keep track of time over the course of our lives and how do we bring those into our memory, he was talking about this sash. And he mentioned that uh, lots of times in a Métis family, if um, the husband and the wife were going to be broken up for a short while while one was out hunting or was out in the bush for um for whatever reason for a bunch of months that they would actually both have matching sashes tie knots into the the fringe of the sash, and every day untie a knot until all of them were untied, and then you would expect the uh, the person who was away to be back. And it was a really great way to mark the time as uh, as the days went by, and to ensure that you were both kind of on the same page and didn't lose track of uh, of someone who was missing. Which I thought was a really interesting way of uh, marking time uh, and a different way of looking at uh, as the time passing over the the course of you know, months or years. For many, the memories of their youth, uh, including membership in youth organizations, such as scouts, girl guides, cadets, or local service clubs, uh, are kind of the most powerful memories that you bring forward into your life. These organizations provided opportunity for uh, people to meet new friends, learn new skills, take in new experiences, travel, and compete in various local, national, and international competitions. Uh, These life experiences created some of the most vivid and lasting remembrances of uh, younger days. Uh, Seen in this photo, which I think is a great photo, uh, so much emotion in this particular photo, is William Everett Sinnett, and he is holding a trophy he won for the best carved scout staff uh, which is a walking stick uh, which he had hand carved uh, for the first Canadian scout jamboree that was going to be held in Ottawa in 1949. So it was a competition if you won the uh Uh, award for the best walking stick or scout staff, you would get to go to the Jamboree in Ottawa. Uh, And for his award-winning work, he's seen here in this photo at the St. Catharines train station in July 1949. Uh, And you can see in the photo, his staff is all safely packed up in the box. You can see it says handle with care on the box and it's ready to travel to Ottawa to attend uh, the Jamboree along with, uh, with Bill Sinnott. And luckily for us, we actually have in our collection his scouting uniform, the same uniform he's wearing in the picture, which was great. So there you go. There it is in the picture. Uh, And here he is. or Here's the uniform. Um, Bill was a member of the 9th St. Catherine's Scout Troop. Uh, the group was originally located at St. George's Anglican Church, uh, but the senior members of the Scouts also had a group at the Optimus Hall that's located next to the Lakeside Armory, or sorry, Lake Street Armory. Uh, and Bill was a very active scouter and a very accomplished scout uh, who owned or who earned an award uh, called the King's Scout Award. Uh, And he also earned the silver wing flying lion badge, which you can see in this image. It's the blue badge that's on the uh, the left hand above the left hand pocket uh, that has the that looks like a a lion with wings on it. Uh, Bill earned 35 badges, merit badges, uh, in order to earn his King Scout and silver wings. Uh, his accomplishments are remarkable, uh, according to uh, scouting experts in the community. This is pretty big deal, uh, and it's possible that Bill Sinnott is the most decorated youth in scouting that St. Catharines has ever had in their community. So it is a pretty big deal, uh, and you can see I've shown I've put two pictures here. One one of. Um, the full uniform that you can see and then one that is a close-up of the uh the right hand side of his uniform that shows a couple of the other badges and you can see he also traveled to uh the the national scout jamboree in california uh, and he also went overseas and traveled to a scout jamboree there as well so he did get a lot out of his um, scouting experience as a youth and stayed with the organization and. Um, became a scouting leader as an adult as well and kind of paid it forward so obviously his memories of being a scout was pretty significant and stayed with him for his life. So let's talk about attending a show or a play. Uh, Those uh, usually attending a live performance brings a wealth of sensory experiences There's always bright lights, music, bright costumes, makeup, uh, scents and sounds and a shared enjoyment with fellow audience members. These create vivid memories and lively associations uh, that can stay with audiences for years to come. I'm sure that most of us can remember a show that we've seen many, many years ago that almost seems like yesterday. uh, And that is just kind of just, you know, so clearly in your memory of a time and a place. In St. Catharines, we are so lucky to have Carousel Players, uh, which is an award-winning local professional theater company for young audiences. Uh, and they believe that live theater develops artistic awareness, learning skills, and a sense of well-being for in children. Carousel Players has been presenting inspiring and creative plays for children in theaters, schools, and other performance venues for 50 years. Uh, And this year there's this year upcoming they'll be celebrating a milestone anniversary their 50th anniversary in 2021 and 2022 and we're very happy to be able to uh, to celebrate uh, with them and. Part of that will be having on display this beautiful costume uh, that was worn by the lead character whose name was Simon in the 2017 play Boys, Girls and Other Mythological Creatures that was written by Mark Crawford and which follows a young person named Simon Simon, who is fond of playing dress up. While making up adventures with their new neighbor Abby and this uh, original picture that I showed here is part of the play and there's Abby and Simon. Uh, And we're very happy to uh, be able to display this costume and that photo uh, courtesy of carousel players uh, and to help them celebrate their anniversary next year. Achieving success in whatever we do usually also helps to create powerful memories. Uh, Chemical reactions in our brains help to create strong neural connections that cement memories for recall at a later date. One of these chemicals is called dopamine, uh, and it's a neurotransmitter that is released when we achieve big success. Uh, and dopamine also helps our brains to create long-term memories. So dopamine kind of has two, uh, two uses in this particular case. So if you are in an athletic competition and you do really great, usually your brain or your body releases dopamine. But then at the same time, dopamine helps to cement these memories into long-term memories. There's no question at all that uh, reaching the elite level in a sport. Uh, It takes a significant amount of time, a lot of energy and commitment, and that winning at that top level can be life-changing and emotional. It creates a lot of memories that way. The feeling of standing on the top of the podium in a sport is unforgettable. And in St. Catharines, we have so many examples of excellence in sport uh, that it was difficult. I had to narrow it down of who we were going to feature in this exhibit. And I narrowed it down to two. Uh, One is uh, uh, this particular object here. Um, And let me go forward here. I don't think, oh, I missed a picture. I'm sorry. You'll have to come and see it in the exhibit. But uh, seen here are the, uh, the robes that were worn by Larry Demchuk. And Larry was a local athlete and a boxer. And Larry won the Golden Gloves Award in 1965 after competing at a boxing event in New York. He was the first St. Catharines resident to win this award. Larry Demchuk was 16 years old at the time of his win. So he had this. Uh, we have a great picture which you can come and see in the exhibit of him holding up these robes, and he's wearing the uh, the shorts that will be uh, on display. Um, and he was the uh, he won the novice bantam weight class for uh, 118 pounds, and he followed in the footsteps of his father, Bill Demchek, who was also a boxer. And in the picture, he's so happy and so excited, and. Obviously this was an important moment in his life because his family kept this, he kept it and his family kept the robes and the, uh, the shorts and eventually donated the, those and the photo that goes with it to the, um, to the museum uh, for our collection. The Olympics, another big, huge sporting event, uh, arguably the biggest stage on earth for sport. Uh, the Los Angeles Summer Olympics in 1984 saw several St. Catharines rowers competing across several event categories. Uh, the Canadian men's eight, which the crew, which is the crew that you can see here, rode to a gold medal victory, edging out the United States by a very thin margin. Uh, we also have the uh, the shell, the rowing shell that they rode in that uh, particular race. But you can see here's the whole team right here. Um, and on, in our display, we will have uh, the polo shirt and shorts that were worn by Mark Evans in this picture, uh, which made up a part of the Olympic uniform for the Canadian crews that were over in uh, or that were in Los Angeles for this particular Olympic event. The members of the 1984 Men's Eight rowing team were Blair Horn, Dean Crawford, uh, J. Michael Evans, Paul Steele, Grant Main. Mark Evans, Kevin Newfeld, Pat Turner, and Brian McMahon, who is the Coxie. He's actually on the very far left, Brian McMahon, and their coach is also in this picture. He's on the very far right, uh, and his name is Neil Campbell, and he was a longtime coach at the um, uh, Ridley Rowing Club and uh, at the St. Catharines uh, at the Henley for many, many years. Oh, there we go. And so this is the uh, shorts and t-shirt that uh, will be on display that uh, go along with this picture. So you can see the boys wearing them and the fo- the uniform that obviously was an important part of uh, remembering this event since, um, since he kept it and donated it to the museum. Of course, we can't have an, ev- an exhibit about marking significant events in your life without talking about unions, Uh, no matter the nature of the union, there's no question that weddings are some of the most memorable events in people's lives. Uh, The gathering of family and friends in support of two people who have chosen to spend their lives together leaves an indelible impression on our memories. As reported in the standard, At 10.30 a.m. on a lovely Thursday morning, June 10th, 1926, a quiet ceremony took place at St. George's Church. Hilda Eleanor, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. John Matheson, became the bride of Frank Edward Poynton. The bride wore an Indian lace veil over white crepe de chine dress. She carried a bouquet of white carnations and lily of the valley. Frank Poynton, who we saw in this picture here, and that's his wife, Eleanor, uh, wearing this dress. Frank Poynton was the very first employee of the Lightning Fastener Company as the secretary treasurer. And he eventually moved to basically be the top of the, uh, um, the food chain at the Lightning Fastener Company and a member of the board of directors until his retirement in 1965 here they are on their wedding day uh, posing for photos in their backyard of their home and of course we have Eleanor's wedding dress in our collection it's a beautiful dress it's amazing condition uh, it's not as white as it was originally which is what happens to uh, um, to white dress, white satin or silk dresses over time. Um, but uh, it's still in amazing condition and we're lucky to be able to have it here. And you can still feel uh, how Eleanor felt at her wedding just by looking at the dress. The invitation that we have in our collection for the Croche de Gais wedding, printed on a lovely vellum paper with a deckle edge, invited guests to share in the joy of the marriage of Sheila Gale, the guests to John David John Croach on Saturday, May thirty first, nineteen eighty, at three p.m. at Christ Lutheran Church, and here they are in their photo, uh, posing for wedding pictures uh, in a forest scene somewhere. And we have the Klee wedding dress in our collection, which is amazing. It's a beautiful dress, as you can see here. The dress is Chantilly lace with a queen anne neckline, a fitted bodice, bishop sleeves, and an empire waistline. The skirt is centered with sheer pleating and a chapel length built-in train, which you can't really see very well in this picture, but uh, it does have a little bit of a train on the back. The veil, which you see here, included a lace cap which held a lace cathedral length laced edged veil and the bride's bouquet as you saw in this picture uh, included white daisies yellow silk roses ivy and baby's breath it's amazing that you take a look at uh, an outfit it looks you know kind of lifeless when you see it on a mannequin here but being able to see the the outfit along with the people wearing them really brings to life the emotion and the attachment to those outfits and really kind of shows you why clothing has such an emotional attachment for people because the emotions that those people have while they're wearing those clothes almost like imbue them and uh, really leave those memories uh, as they go through the rest of their lives. Transitions are oftentimes the most memorable events in a person's life. Uh, Moving from a formal study program to the working world uh, usually marks a significant change in status. Um, And attending a ceremony conferring a diploma or a degree caps off success as a student and anticipates a new chapter in life graduates are usually surrounded by family and friends as they celebrate this end to their academic life. As you can see here in this really great picture of uh, nurses from the Mac Nursing School class of 1964. Uh, the St. Catharines training school and nurses home was started by Dr. Theophilius Mack in 1873 and with its first graduating class of six nurses in 1879. On October 24, 1881 Dr. Mack died and to honor him the school was renamed the Mack Training School for Nurses. In 1957 the first male nurses graduated from the school In 1967 the program became affiliated with the regional schools of nursing and came under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Health. It was renamed renamed Mack School of Nursing at that time. In 1973 all nursing schools in Ontario fell under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Colleges and Universities and the Mack School became the Niagara College Nursing Diploma. 1974 saw the last graduates at the Mac School of Nursing. And we're very, very lucky at the museum here to have the Mac Nursing collection uh, in our um, that was recently donated to the museum and it's part of uh, one of our larger collections here. Uh, and this picture in, is a part of that, which includes the class of 1964 and these graduates getting their cap uh, at their capping ceremony. And on display will be a uniform from the Mac, uh, from the exact same era, same uniform that these girls are wearing. It's, we won't have the cap on display, um, but you can just imagine how these girls felt, pressing their crisp white apron and their striped uniform for that first day on the job. I should actually say how these girls and guys felt because uh, both girls. Uh, men and women were graduated from the uh, the class of 1964, as you can see in this image, and you can see they're having a great time. Obviously, uh, there is a great emotional attachment to their graduation. So, of course, we can't forget uh, as St. Catherine's people that uh, uh, as the season turns to fall in Niagara, our memories often take us to fall festivals like the Grape and Wine Festival. This iconic festival lives in the memory of many local individuals who have enjoyed concerts, parades, and events related to our local viticulture industry. The Grape and Wine Festival began in 1952 with the mission of putting Niagara's grape and wine industry on the map. The 10-day festival has traditionally included a grand parade, a children's Pied Piper parade, food and wine tastings, winery tours, celebrity speakers, and musical performers. Of course, this year was a little bit different, but uh, this is uh, how the Grape and Wine Festival has looked in the past, and will hopefully look again uh, in the very near future. But every year, the Grape and Wine Industry or the Grape and Wine Festival um, choose their festival royalty. Festival royalty are crowned, and they represent excellence in the Grape and Wine Industry. In this photo, you can see there they are the, the festival royalty. Uh, for 1988, the festival crowned Paul Bosque Sr. of Chateau de Charme Winery, who's in the middle of this picture with the big crown, uh, as the grape king. He can be seen in this photo with the festival queen, Kathy Nysink, who is on his, uh, it would be on his right, on our left in the picture, and the 4-H member of the festival royal family, Princess Sarah McLean. And then of course, they're here with Mr. Grape who's hanging himself out of the side of the uh, St. Catherine's transit bus. Um, And uh, he was the longtime mascot of the grape and wine festival. Mr. Grape is also a part of our collection. He won't be on display for this exhibit but uh, we have had him on display in the past and I'm sure we will again. Uh, He's very beloved uh, part of grape and wine history. These robes that you see in the, saw in the picture are also in our collection and they were worn by festival royalty between the years 1976 and 1988. Uh, prior to 1995, the Grape King received a royal cape rather than a blazer, which is what is common nowadays. Uh, and the Grape King is recognized for his or her excellence in viticulture in Niagara. Another festival that uh, has very long association and that really brings back great memories in Niagara is the Niagara Folk Arts Multicultural Festival, which is Canada's oldest continually running heritage festival. The festival is a colorful and eclectic mix of events, open houses, concerts, art events, and food. Every year, many ethnocultural organizations appoint representatives of their clubs through pageants. And in 1976, as seen in this photo is Diane Avedizian who was appointed the ambassador for the Armenian club. And she wore this beautiful pink dress, as you can see here, a sash and a tiara. Um, I think in this photo, oh no, not in this photo, but she also had a little purse that matched her dress. It was beautiful. And she wore these as she carried out her duties in the role of ambassador for the Armenian club. Diane obviously felt like this was a significant event in her life as she kept this dress and the sash and the purse as a memento of this memorable event, along with a scrapbook of photos and memories, and was very, very generous in uh, giving, donating the dress to the collection at the museum here, uh, as well as the, uh, the scrapbook, and allowed us to, uh, to have images, uh, copies of the images from the photo album. And here's the dress, it will be on display. It's beautiful dress. It's of its time from 1976, uh, very pink and silver. um, And uh, the sash that's here, it's a really great look at a pageant of that era. um, And hopefully you'll come to the exhibit and have a look at it uh, because it's a really great example um, of that kind of memory making from the Niagara Folk Arts Festival. As we move through life, lots of times looking back on professional portraits, either school pictures or family photo sessions remind us of a time and a place in our lives. In fact, it's become fashionable recently to recreate your family photos from childhood as adults, um, which we haven't done in this exhibit, but I uh, encourage you to do that and uh, share them with us if you wish. Um, but thinking back on taking your family portraits or your own personal professional portraits, um, usually that included picking your favorite outfit, uh, having your hair styled, looking you know directly into the lens and smiling and hoping to capture your likeness on film uh, and capture that moment in time uh, for the future. This picture is Helen Stanley Smith, Uh, She was born on February 28th, 1904, to Mr. and Mrs. Stanley Smith of 35 Church Street in St. Catharines. Helen attended the Roberton School and later graduated from the University of Toronto in 1926 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Modern Languages. And during the Second World War, Helen was active in the Transport Division of the local branch of the Canadian Red Cross and the Women's Auxiliary of the 10th 10th Field Battery. Helen was married or married Edward Frank McCordick, son of Colonel and Mrs. Frank McCordick on September 14th, 1929. Uh, So she was in a very military family. She married into a very military family, Uh, but here she's probably about 10 years old in this picture in this beautiful lace dress. Uh, Helen uh, died on April 13th, 1997 and is buried at Victoria Lawn Cemetery with her husband, uh, Edward Frank McCordick. Uh, but this dress, here it is here, uh, must have been a favorite as it stayed in the in her family um, for many years and was just recently donated in two, 2017 along with her portrait wearing the dress. Uh, it's in excellent condition still considering that uh, the photo was taken um, You know at the very uh, um, early part of the first world war so it's been around for over 100 years Um, but it's a beautiful dress and uh, clearly was well worn because there's some patches and different places that it had to be fixed up but uh, it's also in excellent condition and uh, clearly has had ongoing memories for this family. We're getting close to the end but I couldn't leave this lecture without talking about Beatlemania and teen years and you know, creating the soundtrack of your life as you go through your teenage years uh, to help to kind of cement those memories. Uh, for most people, the teen years provide some of our most vivid memories, favorite clothes, our friends, and the adventures that were shared. Uh, hanging out at the movies, and most notably the music, like I said, that provides the soundtrack of our lives and provided layers to those teen memories. Those who came of age in the 1960s would have had a hard time escaping from the Beatlemania that gripped the music world, beginning in 1963 and continuing until 1967. As you can see in this photo, the Beatles' phenomenon gripped St. Catharines in June 1964, when the Capitol Theater on St. Paul Street screened the Beatles' feature film, A Hard Day's Night. The film portrays the band as a group of likable guys who are just looking for some peace and quiet from their rabid fans, the press, and authority figures. The, gra- the crowd who gathered to screen the movie in 1964 uh, personified some of the fans in the movie with screaming and excitement part of the experience, as you can see from these uh, these two girls who are screaming, although you can see that the, uh, the boy that's sitting between them is not partaking in the uh, uh, Beatlemania that's going on. Um, But uh, the St. Catherine Standard took a number of photos similar to this uh, with screaming crowds uh, ready to screen the movie. Uh, The accompanying album was a huge hit uh, with the title track on the album, The uh, Hard Day's Night won a Grammy Award for best performance by a vocal group. The movie itself was also nominated for two Academy Awards um, for best score and um, I think best screenplay. A popular fashion item from that period, which you can actually see these girls wearing, um, has been the sweater and the sweater set. Um, Very similar to the girls in the photo. Uh, This pink sweater set takes us back to the days of the Beatles, movies with friends and the British invasion. The great thing about the sweater set at the time was that uh, it was kind of like a blouse alternative. It allowed girls to wear a tighter short sleeve uh, uh, shirt underneath a um, a matching cardigan uh, that most of the time just the top button would be buttoned up on your cardigan. Uh, Also sometimes the girls would wear them with the sleeves not with their arms, not inside the sleeves with a little clip at the top, almost like a cape uh, to, uh, to cover up their a uh, little bit tighter shirt that they had underneath, but also to still remain demure. But the sweater set has been with us for decades um, but it was at the height of fashion at the same time that A Hard Day's Night was gripping uh, the movie theaters across the country uh, in 1964. Sadly, I don't have time to show you every single item uh, and photo that we're going to have on display in our new exhibit, um, which will actually be open to view on December 15th. I encourage you to, as I've said earlier, to come to the museum and see for yourself all of these great items. The photos do not do them ju- justice, seeing them on uh, the the computer screen or your TV screen is just not enough. You got to come in person and have a look at these, uh, these great clothes and at these uh, great images. And to close, I just want to quote fashion historians, Christina Buse and Julia Twig who say, and I quote, clothes tell stories of aging, embodying the passage of time through changing styles, as well as the material decay and aging of garments. They can retain past identities and histories, or may be cast aside as our lives and identities change.
0: Hi, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at More lectures are headed your way this spring, so don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catharines Museum. For details and to register for the series, please visit our website stcatharinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us we really appreciate any donation you're able to make visit our website stcatharinesmuseum.ca or give us a call at 905-984-8880 to make a donation your donation makes a difference next time on vmls via podcast visiting abolitionists with special guest Rochelle bush thanks for listening The virtual museum lecture series is presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welling Canal Center.